This episode of the Historian's Podcast begins with an interview from this year's American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference, a chat with Bruce Venter, author of The Battle of Hubberton, Vermont, The Rearguard Action That Saved America. The second annual American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference attracted over 200 people this year. Brian Mack and Norm Bolin of Fort Plain Museum organized the event. The conference will be held next year from June 8th through June 11th of 2017. This is Bob Cudmore, and we're at the American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference, and we're talking with Bruce Venter, who did a presentation about the Battle of Hubberton. Let me ask you about that first, and then I do want to ask you about your life, which I think is sort of interesting. Uh, what was the Battle of Hubberton? The Battle of Hubberton was part of Burgoyne's 1777 campaign to capture Albany, and it was the first conflict of that campaign after Burgoyne captured Fort Ticonderoga with nary a shot being fired. But uh, at Hubberton, the Americans formed up a rearguard action to prevent the British from gaining on the American main army, which had retreated from Fort Ticonderoga and Mount Independence all the way to Hubberton. And so it was an, a battle that lasted several hours, and it was fairly bloody in terms of uh, the numbers that were engaged. And it's the only um, Revolutionary War battle in Vermont? Yes, it's the only Revolutionary War battle in Vermont. Some people think that Bennington might have been fought in Vermont, but the town of Bennington is in Vermont, but the Battle of Bennington was actually five miles inside the New York border, and that's where the battlefield site is today, maintained by New York State. And your research leads you to believe that this, even though it was a loss for the rebel or, or American side, that it really served the, the cause of uh, the American Revolution. How so? Well, the British won the battle because as a tactical victory, they maintained the field. The Americans were routed from the field. However, the American army was preserved. They were the, the remainder of the army was able to rally at Fort Edward and eventually fight Burgoyne at Saratoga uh, several months later. And, of course, we all know that Burgoyne's surrender at Saratoga was a main turning point in the American Revolution because the following year it brought France into the war on the side of the Patriots. More Americans died at Hubberton than British? No, more British actually died, but uh, the Americans lost many more in captured because they had a lot of stragglers involved, which the British were able to gobble up during the battle. But what happened was the British lost uh, almost 200 of their elite troops, the grenadiers and the light infantry. And those troops could not be replaced by General Burgoyne throughout the rest of the campaign. And you have a book that, uh, that tells this story. Can you tell us just a bit about that? 
yes, I have a book called The Battle of Hubberton, The Rear Guard Action That Saved America. It was published by the History Press, and it is available at the Hubberton Battlefield, as well as Amazon and Fort Ticonderoga and Barnes & Noble. Now, you're involved in American history big time. In fact, you're president of America's History LLC. What, what do you do uh, with, with that company? Yes, uh, this is a part of my uh, retirement avocation. Uh, my wife and I started America's History LLC, and we run bus tours of historic uh, sites, battles, and campaigns, uh, generally three days long, eight hours a day. So you have to like the topic. But we do uh, tours of the French and Indian War, the American Revolution, the Civil War, uh, Custer's Wars out west with the Indians, and sometimes we might throw in a Blackbeard the Pirate tour once in a while. Am I off base or do you have some connection with Williamsburg, Virginia? Yes. Uh, in addition to the actual history tours, we have an annual conference that we do every year at Williamsburg in March. And it's a three-day conference. It starts on uh, Friday afternoon, goes all day Saturday, half a day Sunday. Again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this conference that we're attending uh, organized or kind of the spearheads to me have always seemed to be Norm B uh, Bolin and Brian Mack, that they were influenced by attending one of your, your conferences and said, gee, we could do that up here. Yes, I'm very happy that that happened. Actually, uh, they came to the conference a couple of years in a row, and I had conversations with Norm uh, while I was up here in New York, and uh, as a result, uh, Norm was able to start the conference with Brian, and it's a great success now, too. Uh, I think he gets about 150 people, and we get about 140 at uh, Williamsburg, so it's great to have the revolution alive and well. And just one more point, you used to live in Albany. Yes, I am a native of Albany. I was born in Albany. I went to school in Albany, and I uh, I worked for 26 years uh, at mostly as an assistant superintendent of schools of the Albany City School District. And then in 1997, I moved to Alexandria, Virginia, a similar type uh, position, and I was able to pursue my uh, 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 passion for history by doing a lot of research at the National Archives and the uh, uh, Library of Congress, and as a result, uh, I have another book that was just published this year uh, by the University of Oklahoma Press called Kill Jeff Davis, The Union Raid on Richmond, 1864, and it's about the Kilpatrick Dahlgren Raid, a cavalry raid in 1864 that was essentially to free the prisoners, the Union prisoners, that were held in Richmond on Belle Isle and in Libby Prison. Uh, also, there was a sinister plot to this whole raid in the sense that one of the colonels that was killed on the raid had orders on his body that the Confederates found that said they were either to capture Jeff Davis and burn the city or actually kill Jeff Davis and his cabinet. So it makes it a very controversial raid of the Civil War like no other. Bruce Venter, I thank you for talking with us. 
Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. The Historian's Podcast continues. I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Dave Green to the microphone. How you doing, Dave? I'm just fine, Bob. Here we go again. A little more history under our belts. That's true. Uh, And before I start the next story, I do want to mention we welcome contributions so we can continue producing the Historian's Podcast. Please donate online at GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2016 or send a check made out to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. You know, as I give the little plug here, Dave, I am prompted to give a plug for a good friend of the program, John Warren, who organizes and produces the New York History Blog, where we get a lot of uh, publicity. It's NewYorkHistoryBlog.com, or you just Google New York History Blog, John Warren. John, too, has a fun drive. He doesn't use GoFundMe. He uses Rally. But you can uh, find all about it on uh, the New York History Blog. Often see his articles. Yeah. Yeah, very smart, smart man, and he writes about uh, local history uh, himself. And did I mention that our program is recorded at Dave Green's East Line Studio in New York's southern Saratoga County, a historic spot on its own? I was going Bob, I need to say at this point, are we ever going to get to the history? Or No, let's just keep with it. Let's, let's roll with the plugs. We're on a roll. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you're uh, next to this uh, cemetery, and it's a very interesting uh, a pastoral setting out here. And it's quiet. Quiet. All right. Well, yes, I, uh, let's do a history story. This is one of the uh, stories that I have uh, uh, done. It's been published by the uh, Daily Gazette in my column, Focus on History. Uh, And it's the story of a large man, Dave. In fact, that's how I begin the story. Jacob Snell was a large man. And Jacob Snell also loomed large in politics in Montgomery County and New York State in the late 19th and early 20th century. When he died, newspapers called him one of the best-known Republicans in the state. He was known by some as Boss Snell. And Boss Snell's girth made him an easy target for political cartoonists. The New York Journal in 1901. I'm going to try to paint a picture here, Dave. Hope it comes across. I've seen this picture. Uh, It's up at the Montgomery County Department of History and Archives. Uh, The New York Journal political cartoon shows Snell, a very large man, seated with a diamond stick pin in his tie. And the caption said... Jacob Snell, whose diamond looks him square in the face. In other words, his tummy was so <laughs> elevated. It, in fact, it you know we're uh, of course we're, we're no strength. Bob. There was a time in both our lives where this applied to us. Oh yes, that's <laughs> yeah. true. So I, I feel for Jacob Snell, but he, he seemed to enjoy being so large and uh, probably did cut his life short. In fact, with all this material I have on him, I'm not sure I know what his age was at <laughs> the time of his death. But um, I, I guess what strikes me about that New York Journal cartoon, you know, we think sometimes we've invented dirty politics. It went on. <laughs> went on. I, I can see that. What, what were the what were the uh, the names of some of those uh, pulp? Well, there was publications at the turn of the century. Well, the, the yellow journalism, they called it. Right. I think the leading one was, and I forget what his paper was called, was the uh, papers of William Randolph Hearst. He was kind of known for right. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, 
Back to Jacob Snell, according to his obituaries in several newspapers, he was born in Stone Arabia in the town of Palatine in 1847. I think we could do a whole program about Stone Arabia. If you're going to ask me why it's named Stone Arabia, I don't have a ready answer. I've heard a couple of things. Uh, one was that just that it had a lot of stones, and uh, <laughs> maybe it was, but it's not Ma- desert sensor so far. Yeah. But. It's not. It's not desert-like at all. Others say that Stone Arabia is a corruption of so- some kind of Dutch phrase that actually did mean something. But that's where Jacob Snell was was born on the on the farm in uh, Stone Arabia, and he lived there until about 1870 when he moved to Fonda. While he was still in Palatine, he was elected supervisor, town clerk, running as a Republican in a Democratic town, but he got elected anyway. And two of his ancestors, an earlier Jacob Snell and a man named Alexander Snell, had been elected county sheriff. So Jacob Snell said, why not? And he ran for sheriff of Montgomery County in 1884, but he lost. However, he was elected in 1886, and he served three years. Now, it seems to me that after that, I don't believe he held any important elected office, but he was more the boss, much as Dan O'Connell was the political boss during the Corning years. Was everybody the boss back then, Bob? <laughs> I think it seemed so. like there were a lot of bosses. A lot of bosses. Well, he was the boss. He became the chairman of the Republican County Committee. He was a state committee man. Well, this is an elected office. He also was president for a time of the village of Fonda which I think is equivalent to being like the mayor or something at the time. Where he was the boss. He was the boss. He was superintendent of a section of the Erie Canal for a while. He had a company that did road work. He was president of Mohawk Valley Broom Company (laughs) in Fonda. He owned a downtown hotel in Fonda. He was president of the County Agricultural Society, which organized the county fair. So he had a lot of irons in the fire, Dave, and it looks like quite a few of them were lucrative. That sounds like it. Yeah. He was a popular and powerful leader. The Amsterdam Recorder reported there was prolonged cheering and hand clapping when they didn't call him Boss Snell, but they called him Uncle Jake, entered a 1903 Republican County Convention. That's another thing I think is maybe worth stopping on. Back in those days, 100 years ago, in Montgomery County, they'd have a county convention, you know, in addition to a state convention and a national convention. He sounds like he was the guy you went to when you needed a couple of bucks. Exactly, or or a job. But it seemed that, uh, in fact, this sort of unfolds that toward the end of his life, he seemed to need a couple of bucks at some point, and he gets them, uh, but uh, that story's still to come. Although both men were Republicans, Jacob Snell and Gloversville Congressman and Fulton County Glove Industry mogul Lucius Litauer, or Latour, as we always said, but I believe the family likes it pronounced Litauer, but anyway, Lucius uh, Litauer and Jacob Snell were at odds over the years. Uh, Litauer was in Congress a pretty long time, and Snell had threatened to run against Litauer in 1902, but he dropped out of the race reportedly to improve his chances of getting an appointment to be a prison warden. He had wanted to be the warden at Danamora Prison, but he didn't get the job. Finally, in 1904, 
Governor Benjamin Odell, named Snell the warden of the four-year-old Napanock Reformatory in Ulster County. Are you folks following this? I hope so. I hope so. Well, anyway, so Snell, you know, by 1904, gets what he regards as his ultimate plum job. And I, I honestly, you know, maybe didn't quite understand that. Why would being warden of a prison be such a great thing? But because you can, because you can, and I, and it sounds like it was a great thing. I, after the story ran in the uh, Gazette, I did get a kind of secondhand some emails from the Snell family saying that when he was down there, remember he's a large man. They had, and in those days, at a reformatory, they had trustees. Inmates that they trusted, mm-hmm. uh, and usually, <laughs> they said it were it were guys who'd been serving life terms for murder. Oh, but the, I suppose maybe the real violent ones would have been hung or something like that because the trustees were you know they did a lot of the work for the warden, and supposedly according to some descendant of Jacob Snell, they seemed to have embraced his fatness. They said that. Two trustees were charged with helping him get up the stairs when he had to get up the stairs. Okay, he died in the reformatory in 1905. Now comes the real test day, because I never figured out his age. Uh, 53. Well, it sounds like he was like 58 years old or something of that nature. So he did. Oh, it says it right in my story. He was 58. Uh, here's the quote on the death of Jacob Snell. An abdominal abscess and acute kidney disease, surgical treatment of which was not practicable because of his immense girth, were the primary causes of his death. That's what was written in the Schenectady Union. There's an oft-repeated story, but I was not able to confirm it in any newspaper accounts or anything like that. But there's an oft-repeated story that when Jacob Snell died, the door of the room in the prison where he died had to be enlarged to get his body out. Amsterdam's Democratic paper, that would be an opponent of, of Snell in general, how, nonetheless came to Republican Snell's defense on the subject of his size. The Little Falls Times had reported that at his death, Snell weighed 500 pounds and that 12 men were needed to carry his casket. The Sentinel scoffed at the Times report, saying Snell did not even weigh 400 pounds and that six small men had no trouble handling the casket. I am the, probably a good bet here, Bob, that he was probably the most generous individual around. Yeah, I think he was. He was probably. Known for that. Yep. a fixer. You know, he'd yep. take, take care of things. He would take for care you. of people. Yeah, take care of things for you. At the end, uh, a little more. And, and this will set up our next story. At the funeral for Jacob Snell, which was held in Fonda, Reverend Washington Frothingham, and we'll talk more about him in just a moment, but he was a well-known minister uh, in the Fonda area. Frothingham paid tribute to Snell and his Revolutionary War ancestors, saying seven of them had given their lives for their country. After the funeral, Jacob Snell's body was taken by train for burial in the Canajoharie Falls Cemetery. He had married Nancy Nellis of Palatine in 1867, and they had two sons and three daughters. Back to his role as a political leader, the Canajoharie Courier editorialized that Jacob Snell was, quote, 
unceasing and unrelenting, unquote, on behalf of the Republican Party. Quoting again, a campaign once begun was waged until the polls were closed on election day. So in case of a narrow defeat, he never felt the chagrin that he had not made his best and most ardent fight. I have a separate thought, Bob. Go ahead. The Republican Party, Lincoln was Republican. Mm -hmm. Did the Republican Party, uh, through the following elections after Lincoln's death, pretty much ride his coattails? Were they successful for a number of years? Oh, yes. In fact, um, I can't think of his name, but there's one guy, one Democrat who sneaks in. I think it was Grover Cleveland who uh, sneaks in like in the 1880s or somewhere around there. But he was, was the first Republican or I'm sorry, first Democrat to be elected since before the Civil War. Okay. And the Republicans come back. In fact, Jacob Snell, you know, I can't say he was a bosom buddy of Theodore Roosevelt, but he certainly worked with Theodore Roosevelt because Roosevelt had been a governor and then vice president. And I, I have seen a letter, and you asked about him being generous, that Jacob Snell wrote to TR uh, down in Oyster Bay, you know, basically recommending somebody for a postmaster or something like that. Say, you know, you really should appoint this guy. So he was uh, I understand. an important figure. But now a bit more on Washington Frothingham. This is another uh, previous uh, story of mine that appeared in the uh, Daily Gazette. Uh, Washington Frothingham's useful life is how I've headlined this story. The Frothingham Free Library at 28 West Main Street in Fonda is named for a local man who was a writer and a minister. A sign outside the library pays tribute to Reverend Washington Frothingham, born in 1822 in East Fonda, died at his home in Fonda in 1914 at age 92. Sounds like a quiet life, but actually it was rather exciting, it seems to me. And when Frothingham died, he was relatively speaking well off, and he left money in his will to help establish the library, reading room, and billiard room. That's how his will reads, that it was going to be a library, reading room, and billiard room. He seemed to uh, have a a comical approach to his last will and testament. There are other things in it that were kind of... Kind of strange, but he did leave money for the library. I don't believe they still have billiards there, though. But it would make sense at the time. Yeah, I think a major form of entertainment. It was, it was. Frothingham had a useful career, according to stories about his death in numerous newspapers. I mean, he was a minister and he's very serious at it, but he was also called the Dean of American Journalism of his day. He was a syndicated columnist, book author and a historian, in addition to being a a minister. And apparently it's with his writings that he generated the most income. The family into which he was born, the Frothingham family, he was the third of ten children, moved from Fonda to Johnstown when he was a young child. Frothingham's mother was a niece of the famous author Washington Irving, the man who wrote about Rip Van Winkle, and apparently that's that could be one of the reasons Frothingham's first name is Washington, in addition to the link with the president of the United States. Uh, Washington Irving was, I guess, a great uncle. Uh, Frothingham, Washington Frothingham's father was a New York state judge. Frothingham always wanted to be a writer, 
But his family, even though his father was a judge, and there were a lot of kids, you know, they needed money, and to please his father and help the family, Frothingham moved to New York City and worked in a Broadway store. Eventually, he was part owner of a store and kind of going on his way to a career in sort of merchandising. But at age 28, Frothingham felt called to the ministry. He sold his share of the business in New York City, went to Princeton, developed public speaking skills, got educated as a, as a minister. His first position was at a Presbyterian church in Gilderland. He then opened a Sunday school in what they called a preaching station at an Albany machine shop. That effort led to the founding of Albany's former West End Presbyterian Church. We're now all the way up to the Civil War, and during the Civil War, Frothingham was invited back to Fonda to restore the declining Reformed Church. He succeeded in doing that, although his pro-Union, you know, as in Union versus the Confederacy, his pro-Union political stance ran counter to what were described as the secessionist views of some church members. He was then called to serve the nearby Presbyterian Church in Tribes Hill, where he was pastor until 1905. In 1862, at age 40, Frothingham married Mary Middlemass, a native of Scotland, who was a Sunday school teacher. They never had children. In the 1860s, Frothingham began writing columns on current events for newspapers throughout New York and Massachusetts, including the New York Times, the Troy Times, and the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. He used pen names, most notably the Hermit of New York in Troy and Macaulay in Rochester. Frothingham was the author of several books, including histories of Montgomery and Fulton counties. He was friendly with newspaper men and writers, including Horace Greeley and William Cullen Bryant. His writing kept him financially solvent, as Washington Frothingham was generous. While he was still alive, he started a public bath in Fonda, funded a bowling alley, and when his work made him a frequent train traveler, on his own he started distributing Christian tracts or Christian pamphlets to the passengers. He held religious services inside the Fonda jail. He told a reporter that he found a good number of prisoners who could sing many of the hymns from memory and sing them well. After his first wife died, Frothingham married his wife's nurse, Ella Levitt of Tribes Hill. She was a school teacher and a correspondent for the recorder. And then I find a kind of an odd incident that happened late in his life. Frothingham had cancer, and he had it surgically removed at a hospital in Albany, I believe probably the predecessor of Albany Medical Center. The newspapers reported that Frothingham rallied from the ether, and they described him as the oldest patient at that point in time to be anesthetized and survive an operation. Well, help me out. What year? It was in the early 1900s. I don't have the year in front of me. All right. Uh, But the point was, I mean, they've been using ether for a long time, but supposedly he was among the oldest to have an operation and survive. And I think he was in his 90s. He, uh, let me see here, he died three years later. Um, Well, and two weeks after celebrating a, a paralyzing stroke. 
Uh, let me see. I have to back up in the story here. We are running a little short of time, but because I think I give his age right at the very, uh, very beginning of the of the piece. Oh my goodness! I probably shouldn't have done this uh, and died at his home. All right, he was 92 when he died. So let's say he was 89, 88 uh, when he had that uh, operation. Uh, for cancer. And Frothingham died once again three years after that operation, just a couple of weeks after he suffered a paralyzing stroke. The funeral was held at Fonda's Reformed Church. Burial was at Cognawaga Cemetery on Cemetery Road in Fonda. There's another connection to Washington Frothingham, a descendant of his. One of Washington Frothingham's nephews was Robert Frothingham, an author and advertising man who maintained a summer home near Northville. In the 1940s, Robert Frothingham's widow, Minnie, donated many items from her husband's extensive collection of photographic slides and animal taxidermies to Amsterdam's school museum, which is now the Walter Elwood Museum on Church Street in Amsterdam. In fact, uh, the Frothingham collection uh, forms a, a you know big chunk of the uh, dare I say Dave stuff that they've got at the Walter Elwood Museum in Amsterdam. So on today's historians podcast, the story of the Reverend Washington Frothingham, who was a well-known journalist as well, and also the story of political boss Jacob Snell. You've been listening to the historians. I'm Bob Cutmore.